Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, what comes next for Canada-China relations after diplomats get sent home? I'll talk trade and security with the former Consul General to Hong Kong. And if Canada is willing to expel a Chinese official over foreign interference, why not Russians? The Ukrainian-Canadian Congress is repeating its call for diplomatic sanctions, and I'll speak with their president. We are trying to appoint quality as well as a certain quantity of judges. Concern about judicial vacancies and a crisis in Canada's justice system. The vice president of the Canadian Bar Association weighs in. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson, in for Michael Serapio. We begin with more questions for the Prime Minister on China and foreign interference. With Conservatives demanding power for the Auditor General to look at the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation and its handling of donations. Now, we know that the Prime Minister's own brother processed the donation. We know CSIS intelligence from an intercepted phone call of Beijing's diplomats revealed that the purpose of the donation was to politically influence this Prime Minister. But now the new development is that the chair of the Trudeau Foundation says he can't tell where the donation ended up. He says they gave it back, but they don't know who they gave it back to. Will the Prime Minister support new powers for the Auditor General to fully audit the Trudeau Foundation so that we can get to the bottom of the scandal. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, as the member of opposite uh, fully knows, as all MPs have heard me say probably a dozen times in this House, it's been close to 10 years since I've had any direct or indirect uh, engagement with the Trudeau Foundation. Uh, He uh, needs to continue to direct his questions to them. Now, after that exchange, MPs did vote to investigate China's alleged intimidation of Conservative Michael Chong. And we'll have more on that in a moment. But first, let's look at the wider implications of all this for Canada's economy and security. Jeff Nankavell is president of the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. He also held several diplomatic roles in China, including Consul General for Hong Kong and Macau. Mr. Nankavell, good to have you on Primetime Politics. Thanks for having me. So your predecessor at the foundation, Stuart Beck, says Chinese behavior is providing something of a wake-up call for Canada's approach to China on foreign policy and trade, that we need closer alignment with the United States. Do you agree that's what Canada needs to be doing right now? Well, I think there's there's no question about the wake-up call uh, part of that, that that, um, we are... You know, there, there, there have been behaviors of China's uh, party state, uh, the regime in Beijing, um, over over the years, particularly uh, since uh, Xi Jinping became the 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 paramount leader in in China a decade ago. Um, that we've seen a very aggressive moves in the foreign policy sphere, including in China's own neighborhood, the militarization of the South China Sea. Um, and uh, within uh, China itself and, and territories that, that China controls, uh, you know, we've seen a, a crackdown in, in, in Hong Kong um, and, uh, and new waves of repression within, within uh, mainland China as well. And, you know, lots of evidence of um, 
of activities of uh, agents of China um, through different channels uh, being active in countries including Canada. And, and I think that, you know, the recent revelations have, have put, some, put some specific details in play on that. And it's definitely shaping opinion in Canada. Although I, I think it's important to note that that the events um, at the at the moment, you know, the issue of the moment, which is uh, which is about the expulsion of a diplomat from China's uh, consulate in Toronto, um, is is not the result of a of a recent action by China. It's the result of something that reportedly happened or was reported uh, two years ago. Um, so it's not it, it doesn't represent in itself something new by China. And um, and I think um, that will you know, that's important to keep in mind as we talk about about the ramifications of all this. And China has, of course, retaliated by expelling a Canadian diplomat. And the government has, has used language uh, such as being resolute and saying that Canada alone is going to be responsible for uh, the consequences of all this. So. How concerned should Canadians be about more Chinese escalation? Well, I think I think you have to keep in mind that you know all politics is domestic, and so for the Chinese leadership, they are responding also to their domestic audiences, as as do you know political leaders in Canada and elsewhere. And so, the expulsion of a Chinese diplomat from Canada is something that politically demands a very strong response. From uh, from the government in China, so I think no one was surprised at the at the immediate uh, tit for tat expulsion of a of a Canadian consular diplomat from Shanghai. Um, uh, that said, I, I don't know. I don't think we see evidence that China is really looking for a fight with Canada at the moment. As I mentioned, you know the. The, the, the specific incident that, that we are all reacting to now is, is something that took place a couple of years ago. Um, so I, I don't see a kind of a deliberate uh, ratcheting up by China. So, so I think we'll just have to, we'll have to see if, if there are further measures in, for instance, in the trade sphere by China. Um, but I, 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 I wouldn't assume that there will be. Now that said, um, there are well-known risks to depending on on China as a trade partner, or or to make it real, you know, for Canadians, if you're a company depending on China, you know, as your main customer, um, the nature of the regime in China, particularly in the last decade, is such that there are inherent risks there, and those risks are are um, are there today as they were, you know, five years ago. Uh, and that is the risk of arbitrary measures that you can have in an authoritarian system that your your particular export, your good or service that you're exporting to China, there is a there's an extra risk of arbitrary measures being imposed for political reasons by the authorities in China that is not the same as the risk that you face if your customers are in Western Europe or or indeed in other parts of Asia that don't have a similar kind of dynamic to China. So I think, it is there is a, a special risk that comes with doing business in China as there as there is for some other places around the world. I, I don't think that the risk is is really significantly higher you know today than it was a week ago. I think we'll see we've seen this tit for tat um, response on the on the diplomatic expulsions, but I think we'll have to see 
wait and see evidence that there's an appetite on the part of Beijing to to escalate. And I, I haven't I haven't seen that yet. I would I just discount the rhetoric at the moment because it is, as I say, I think it's a political gesture for a domestic audience in China. Sometimes that rhetoric is accompanied by subsequent action. But if you look at the, at the cases in recent years, uh, there are other times when strong rhetoric from Beijing is not accompanied by specific actions. Okay, let's, uh, I guess, widen the scope of the conversation a bit because uh, the Canadian government does have its Indo-Pacific strategy released last year. It included not just more attention to threats from China in the economic sphere, in the military sphere, but it also uh, does include uh, a lot about reducing Canada's reliance on Chinese trade and diversifying mm -hmm. uh, our economic um, impact, our economic influence across uh, the Asia-Pacific. So do the recent events involving foreign interference really galvanize that idea of a reset? Does it do anything to, uh, I guess, speed up what's perhaps already in motion? Well, I, I think there is uh, the point here is that there is a lot that is in that was in motion already. So under this Indo-Pacific strategy, and I, and I should mention in the interest of transparency that the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada was named as, uh, as a, a partner uh, for the government uh, that uh, would be uh, receiving additional resources uh, for us to do work with a physical presence in Asia for the first time uh, to work in the areas that we work on as a, as a national public institution independent from government, which is to promote greater understanding, uh, mutual understanding and awareness between Canada and Asia, and that's all of Asia. Um, but the 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 strategy itself is, um, uh, you know, has is a lot of it is about trade diversification, and that's about putting resources into those parts of Asia that have been less well developed as markets for Canada. And I think what you'll see as a result of uh, of the strategy being rolled out in the coming in the coming months and and years is uh, is a greater focus on other areas. Southeast Asia is an area of tremendous promise. India uh, is in a much better demographic position than China and offers a lot of opportunities. And I think we have renewed opportunities in mature markets of, of Japan and Korea. Um, but once again, I, I don't know that the events of, of this week will, will um, have a, a really significant impact on that, except to the extent that the companies who are making their own choices Canadian businesses and institutions may, uh, who already have uh, uh, adopted a cautious view when it comes to expanding their, their business ties with China, it, it will probably give them additional pause for thought. Okay, we'll certainly have to keep watching developments as they unfold. Jeff Nankavell, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. I declare the motion carried. The vote was unanimous this afternoon. MPs want a closer look at alleged Chinese targeting of members and whether it adds up to contempt of parliament. Michael Chong's privileged motion now goes to the Commons Procedure Committee. Canada has expelled the Chinese diplomat linked to the allegations involving Michael Chong and his family. But the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress is repeating its call to extend persona non grata treatment 
to Russian officials. Alexander Hishi is national president of the UCC. Ms. Hishi, thank you for joining me. You. So you've been seeking the removal of Russian diplomats from Canada since the invasion of Ukraine started. What's your feeling on this now that the government has gone ahead and expelled a Chinese official over foreign interference? I think it leaves the government of Canada with no choice but to uh, exercise the same uh, actions with respect to Russian diplomats. Uh, we know that the same sources which have been alerting Canadians to the danger posed by both Chinese and Russian uh, foreign players in Canada uh, have talked about the role of the Russian Federation. The report of the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians identified both the Chinese and the Russians as agents of foreign malign influence. And there's, I have to read a quote to you. It says that the Russian Federation engages in foreign interference activities across Canada's political system with the objective of influencing government decision-making and swaying public opinion. Some of Russia's intelligence officers under diplomatic cover have engaged in threat-related activities. The nature and extent of Russia's foreign interfer interference threat is significant as these activities form a key component of the broader national security threat posed by Russia. I don't, we have not been able to understand why the Russian diplomats are still here in Canada. And just, uh, I do want to talk about the government's uh, reaction to this and what they've been saying. But just to be clear, Russia, of course, has a large embassy in Canada, a large number of accredited diplomats. What exactly are you looking for in terms of uh, targeting Russian officials? Do you want a complete expulsion across the board? Do you want the embassy closed? Uh, what are you trying to accomplish? We, of course, have been asking for Russia to be declared a state sponsor of terrorism, which carries with it the uh, the consequence of a, uh, severing diplomatic relations. But at a minimum, we want to see uh, some action taken with respect to the diplomats that are here. The, the proportionality is completely out of line. Russia has over 80 uh, personnel here. The Ukrainian embassy, by contrast, has uh, 25, Poland 26, Germany 50, and the UK 51. There is no excuse for Russia having double the amount of representation here that our, that our closest allies in Canada have. So when this question came up last year, the government said uh, these kind of tit-for-tat expulsions could hurt Canada's ability to maintain high-level contact with Russia, uh, to ensure Canadian interests are visible inside Russia, and that we have eyes and ears on the ground. And that's, of course, the suggestion that Russia would then retaliate by removing Canadian uh, diplomats from Moscow. What do you think of those arguments now? Well, I think that the, I would rather use the proportionality argument. It doesn't have to be a tit for tat. We can reduce the uh, Russian compliment uh, to make it proportional to either what Canada, representation Canada has in Moscow, or to at least bring it into line with the representation of our allies. What we don't understand is how that proportionality has gotten so out of whack. Why has Canada accredited over 80 Russian diplomats? Here. There's there's no no rhyme or reason to that. Well, I was going to ask you, 
what you think the government's uh, rationale on this is or what you've heard from the government, because Canada did expel several Russian diplomats five years ago after the poison attack on a former intelligence officer uh, in the UK. And as you know, since the invasion of Ukraine, several of Canada's allies have expelled Russian diplomats, Germany and uh, Norway just recently expelling uh, several Russian officials working in intelligence. Do you have a sense of, of why Canada is taking a different stance? Well, I think Canada perhaps has allowed this, as I call it, the proportionality to get out of whack and may now be in a difficult position. But we're not uh, in line with what our allies are doing. As you have said, our allies have expelled over 600 uh, diplomats over the last 14 months. And that is uh, UK's MI5 has stated that they estimate that 400 of the 600 diplomats who were expelled are engaging in uh, espionage activity. So uh, why is Canada tolerating the conduct of espionage activities here on our own turf? Uh, and particularly, Ukrainian Canadians are sensitive to this because we've been documenting the amount, the number of anti-Ukrainian incidents since the war began. Uh, they're roughly two a month. Uh, we've re recorded uh, about two dozen of those incidents. And uh, Ukrainian Canadians and those who support Ukraine uh, are being targeted with uh, graffiti, vandalism, uh, and other acts. They, they're targeting uh, Ukrainian Canadian businesses and other businesses who are, you know, flying Ukrainian flags. So this is, uh, you know, it's, it's inexplicable to us why... Uh, you know, our community and those who support us have to be subjected to this. These are activities that are orchestrated, supported and encouraged by those people who work in the Russian embassy. So last question for you, then. We are waiting to hear about a potential public inquiry on foreign interference. The former governor general, David Johnston, has until uh, the 23rd to make his recommendation to the government. We know China is a central focus of this story, but you've just given some uh, details uh, about Ukrainian Canadians. What do you want to see investigated if there is a public inquiry? Well, we wrote to Special Rapporteur Johnston asking him to uh, at least comment upon the uh, activity of Russian agents here in Canada. He will have access to the confidential information that uh, addresses both the Chinese threat and the Russian threat. And we have asked for an expansion of his mandate to address the Russian threat. All right, Alexandra Hishi, National President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, thanks for your time. Thank you. The government says Canadians can apply online for their passport renewal starting this fall. And later this summer, there will be a new look to the passports themselves. Security features will include engraved laser instead of ink to protect personal information. And there are visual changes on the cover and inside, with ministers defending the decision to replace historic Canadian figures and moments with more generic images. 
We need to make sure that the technology is current. Um, you'll notice that it's, it's multicolored, whereas previously that was not something that was part of the Passport design. It has you know, very strong security features in here, which is going to make the Canadian Passport a world-leading document, um, but I, I, I know that sometimes you're looking to create a story, but I think in this regard, it's just about creating a beautiful document for which Canadians can be proud of. And it's important that that's continually updated to make sure that we're keeping fraudsters and criminals at bay while protecting the ability of Canadians to travel with one of the most trusted documents in the world. While well, the Vimy Bridge Memorial is among the images being removed from the passport, the Royal Canadian Legion calls it a poor decision, and it led to this in question period. The question was, why is he deleting our veterans from our history? Why is he deleting the 3,598 Canadians who gave their lives so that Canada could have freedom and victory at Vimy? He is erasing them, and with that, he is insulting all of our veterans. The Prime Minister, why, was, why will the Prime Minister not stand up for our history, get connected to reality, and keep the images in our passport that make us so proud to be Canadian? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Right now, Mr. Speaker, veterans across the country are being reminded of what the Conservatives did around veterans. They wrap themselves in the flags and the symbols anytime they can, but in fact, they nickeled and dimed our veterans, they used them for photo ops, they shut down nine veteran service offices across the country uh, so they could try and save a little money through cuts. The fact is, Mr. Speaker, the Conservatives have always disrespected veterans while they wrap themselves in the Imagery. We're going to continue to deliver for the veterans every single day. The justice minister says he's working hard to fill judicial vacancies. This after a media report that Canada's chief justice is warning the prime minister of a crisis in the justice system. According to Radio Canada, Richard Wagner is concerned about the government's pace in appointing judges and the risk it poses to trials. Here's David Lametti earlier today. I do think we are careful in the process in the sense that we are trying to appoint quality as well as a certain quantity of judges. Uh, and I think if you ask, the Chief Justice has said this uh, expressly, that they are very happy with the quality of the appointments that we have made across Canada and the diversity of the appointments. Mm -hmm. What you'll hear from um, a number of, of racialized groups is that they've applied in the past and they feel that their applications don't get looked at. The, I try to dispel that and I try to dispel that through the nominations that I've made and I, and I, think, I think if you look at those numbers they're really very good uh, in, terms of, in terms of women, in terms of uh, uh, racialized communities. Um, working hard to working hard to build the application pool so that we then have uh, we have really good candidates to choose from. So let's talk more about judicial vacancies with John Stefaniuk. He is vice president of the Canadian Bar Association, and joining me from Winnipeg, Mr. Stefaniuk. Good to see you. Good to see you, Andrew. So in that letter obtained by Radio Canada, the Chief Justice says the situation is untenable. He says we're near a point of no return that our democratic institutions are at risk because of these judicial vacancies. What's the significance of the country's top judge saying all this? 
Well, first I'll say that we we haven't seen the text of the actual letter. We've seen reports, uh, but we certainly share the concerns that have been expressed. And, and the significance is manyfold. Um, first off, uh, with the Supreme Court's decision in the Jordan case and subsequent cases, there's, of course, the question of uh, delay and its effect on matters in the criminal justice system, uh, that if delay is inordinate, it can result in the uh, stay of proceedings in many circumstances, uh, which can have an impact on the public's perception as to whether or not uh, justice is being uh, administered and, and affect uh, confidence in the uh, administration of the systems of justice. Uh, we've had a recent Supreme Court of Canada decision in which um, a delay was reason for dismissal of a, a, a manslaughter conviction. So uh, this can apply to even serious, very serious offenses. The other part of it, of course, is that it uh, has an impact on access to justice. And uh, when people find that they are unable to get uh, redress from the courts in a timely fashion, they either go, out, go without that redress or uh, just simply get frustrated with the system. And that undermines uh, confidence and uh, support for the legal institutions. And when you lose confidence and support for legal institutions, it's a threat to uh, rule of law and, and democratic systems of government that uh, we all cherish. So uh, as of this month, there are more than 80 positions uh, vacant across the country. That's around 8% of federally appointed judges. What do you see as the main roadblocks to getting these positions filled? Well, I think there are a number of roadblocks. Uh, some are within the purview of the uh, Minister of Justice, and some are perhaps more systemic. Uh, one thing that is in the purview of the minister is to ensure that the uh, that the, uh, the committees, judicial advisory committees, are functioning in each of the jurisdictions in which they are appointed. Uh, those are the committees that vet applications for judicial appointment and provide recommendations to the minister and generate the lists from which the minister may select appointees. And uh, currently there are uh, several uh, committees that are, uh, are not functioning and it's important to get those positions filled, any vacancies, and to get them fully, uh, uh, fully operational, so that applications can be dealt with on a timely basis. Um, another issue is a little bit more systemic, and that is ensuring that there's sufficient uh, numbers and breadth of applicants. And that, that's something where the CBA has been working very hard in terms of encouraging uh, people who might uh, have an interest in applying for judicial appointment to get their names in. We've worked hard over the last several years in making recommendations to simplify or uh, and adjust the applications itself to make it less intimidating for some potential applicants and make it more relevant. And uh, we have, uh, even as recently as December, when we've had a couple of uh, national webinars in which we have focused on the judicial application process and then specifically applications for those in underrepresented groups. So th with, with that, uh, we hope we can uh, round out the field of, uh, of applicants uh, from which uh, the committees may make their recommendations and from which the minister may make selections to best reflect uh, Canada and uh, uh, in the uh, legal system. 
Right, and we did hear the Justice Minister today talk about efforts uh, for those underrepresented groups applying uh, to sit on the bench. He's also called the overall issue of vacancies a serious problem. He says the government is working to fix it, but points to the fact that the government has appointed uh, some 600 judges since uh, taking office. But is there something more in the short term that the government can be doing to speed up the process? Because you've been talking about some issues just now that I know the CBA has been pointing to for several years. Well, in the short term, uh, I think it's uh, to review applications that are available and make recommendations. Uh, if there are uh, gaps, if there are, uh, uh, if the if the pool is not sufficiently broad, then I think the uh, there can be efforts made uh, to uh, engage additional applicants. The judicial appointment process is, allows me or you or anyone uh, to uh, approach uh, a potential candidate and, uh, and encourage them to make an application. Uh, it also uh, contemplates that uh, anyone can make a recommendation to the uh, Office of Judicial Affairs, who will then contact uh, the um, person whose name has been put forward and request that they put in an application. All right, we'll have to leave it there. John Safaniak, Vice President of the Canadian Bar Association, I want to thank you for your time tonight. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Primetime Politics. For all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.